Oh, there's, there's a mute button. Okay. Okay. Hey. Now I can move it down. Are we okay? All right, we'll start over. Okay, so you guys have lost something before. I lost my wedding ring in Lake Michigan. And there were about three-foot waves that day. And I was way out from shore. And, uh, and you know, the waves are moving you all over, so I don't even know exactly where I dropped it. And so I'm just, I yelled out to my family, and uh, I'm like, I lost my ring, I lost my ring. So we're all like feeling around in the sand in about three feet deep water, and I'm diving down there, and I just prayed. I was like, Lord, help me find my ring. And, uh, and all of a sudden, I was raking my hand through the sand underwater, and I felt something, and I grabbed it and pulled it up, and it was my wedding ring. It's a miracle. It really was. And I was so excited to have my ring again. Have you ever lost something before so long that you totally forgot all about it, but then you found it one day and you're really, really excited? Anybody? You want to tell me about it? No? What about you? No? Everybody's going to be shy? But you've had that happen before? It's, you get really, really excited. It's like you have something brand new all over again. And, and, you know, if, if it was a toy and you'd forgotten all about it and all of a sudden you found it again, you're like, oh, I love this toy, and you're playing with it, and it's like, it's like the best day ever. It's like the first day you were given it, right? Well, what is this in my hand? Do you guys know? The Bible, right? God's Word. Do you know God's Word is really important to me? And I would be really, really sad if I lost mine. But did you know there was a time when God's people had lost his word and they lost it so long that they forgot about it? Can you imagine that? In fact, one day King Josiah said, I want to clean out the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was the place where people went to worship God. And so they're cleaning out the tabernacle because it was a mess. And in the process of cleaning it out, they found God's word. Let me read it for you. It's in 2 Chronicles Chapter 34, it says, While they were bringing out the money that the Lord had brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Can you believe it? And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and Shaphan brought the book to the king. And he reported to the king, All that was committed to your servants today to do, we are doing. They have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have, gave, have given it into the land of the overseers and the workmen in the hands of. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. I don't think he even knew that this was God's word. This was something special. It's a book. They found this book, right? Okay. And Shaphan read from the book before the king. And when the king heard, heard the words of the law of the Lord, he tore his clothes. Why would he tear his clothes? Any idea why he might do that? Any guesses? When your parents read you a story at bedtime, afterwards, do you tear your jammies off? Like, that was an awesome story! (laughs) Probably not. Probably not. Okay, they did that to express when they were really, really upset, and they would tear their clothes. He was really upset because as he heard God's word, he realized that they hadn't been following God's instructions. 
And so he shared it with all the people, all God's people of Israel. From God's word, he stood up in front of them and he read this. And all the people committed together that they wanted to obey God's word the way it was written. And so I want to ask you a question. Where's your Bible? I assume most of you guys have a Bible. Do you know where your Bible is right now? You lost yours. There's a perfect example, okay? (laughs) Where's yours? You lost yours too. I hate it when that happens. (laughs) My wife knows I misplace things often too, so I'm guilty. All right, I just want to remind you guys, God's Word, the Bible, is precious. These people were so excited and so upset when they found out that what they'd been missing. They'd been missing God's Word. And God, our Bible isn't meant to be put in a bookshelf or put in a drawer and hidden away and forgotten about until, oh, it's Sunday, let's grab our Bible and go to church. God's Word is a gift for us so that we can spend time learning about Him. Every time we read God's Word, we discover more about God. We discover more about Jesus, and that's awesome. So I want to encourage you guys, love your Bible. Thank you so much for your attention this morning. You can go be seated. Kids, this morning, just the little kids go out. You older kids, you can come on over here, and there's a special handout. forgot something. Well, we have really, really been blessed this weekend and two weeks ago when we came and visited you guys with the warmth, um, the fellowship, just to see your guys' love for the Lord. It has encouraged us and it has refreshed us to spend this time with you and and we've loved it and we've enjoyed every minute of it. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I definitely have gained a little weight. <laughs> Good food. Thank you for the great food as well. Praise the Lord. Um, we're so thankful. And my prayer is that through our time together, you guys have gotten to know us, and you've gotten to know our family um, and, our, and our love for the Lord as well. And my prayer is that as I leave you today, that you guys would be challenged and encouraged to be more bold in your faith. Um, so I thought you guys might enjoy a few pictures of us, just some of you maybe haven't gotten a chance to sit down and get to know us and hear a little bit of our story. So in real brief, I'm just going to run through that. I was born and raised in West Michigan. My dad has pastored a, a small church, Hamilton Baptist Church, there for over 25 years. My parents are in that picture in the top right. They came to visit us while we were missionaries in Papua New Guinea, and that was a really, really special time for us to have them come visit us there. We were desperate to see our family, <laughs> and it was, it was wonderful. Um, I met my wife when we were at Cornerstone University, where we both graduated, and we married uh, January 6, 2001. We've been married 13 years. Um, we have five beautiful children. Um, four of them are in the top picture, and Jaden, our little guy, which we're missing very badly right now, is with Grandma and Papa. Um, and so we can't wait uh, to go see them, but we've, we've enjoyed any minute here. We wouldn't change how we've done things. But, um, yeah, my passion is to... 
I would say Katie and I's passion. Which way do I point this? Up here? Aha. Okay. I, I got to learn the directions of these arrows. Here we go. Right, left. Okay. Okay. Um, Katie and I's passion, we kind of had this motto, was to grow in and live out a relationship with Jesus Christ and to teach others to do that, to grow in their relationship with Christ and then live that out. And that's kind of what has carried us through ministry. Um, we've been involved in youth ministry. The top right picture, uh, I was a youth pastor for seven years at Rockbury Community Church, and that's a picture of the, some of the junior high youth there um, hanging out in the youth room, and we had a great time. Uh, we also went to Papua New Guinea, and I enjoy sports and music, and so this is a picture of me with two guys that I played basketball with. We had a lot of one-on-one -on -one games of 21, and I built a relationship with those guys, and um, they're really special to me. And it's awesome to see them both following God now in their lives. And uh, a picture of my daughter, Caitlin, and I singing a song. We were all around a campfire with Katie's family one night, and that was really neat. Um, so that's a, list, a little bit about ourselves. We went through training with New Tribes Mission. We served as missionaries in Papua New Guinea for two years. And then through circumstances, the Lord led us back to the States and has been directing our lives towards pastoral ministry. Um, the picture on the top and the bottom left are pictures of our dorm. We were dorm parents, and so we had other other missionaries' kids living in our home, and we were kind of being like parents to them, loving on them, helping them with homework and laundry and food and all kinds of stuff and going to their sports events. And I also helped with um, the youth ministry um, on our missionary center and heading that up. And um, so there's a night when we were gathered with the youth worshiping there at our center. So just to get you guys to know us a little bit more and to see some pictures, um, we've taken a lot of leaps of faith in our life. Um, we've seen how God has been faithful. God has been trustworthy every step of the way. Uh, we've also grown in our understanding about missions and about what God is doing in the world and the difficulties of sharing gospel, the gospel. And honestly, as we look back, we can't believe, we're amazed at what God has done, and we can't believe that we got to spend two years living in a very third world country where God is doing amazing things, and we got to be a part of that. And it's because Christians aren't ashamed of the gospel. Some people think it's outrageous and it makes no sense. I, I can't remember. We encountered this question a number of times when we were at churches where people would say, you're going to bring your kids with you? And we were sharing with them when we were going to Papua Guinea. And I'm like, we were going to get long-term long daycare, kind of like long-term parking at the airport. <laughs> no, of course we're going to bring our kids with us. They're a part of our family. But people were thinking about the diseases, thinking about the cost and the difficulties and, and, and bringing your children through those kind of situations. And, and we're just trusting the Lord and following the Lord. And so as I thought about that, I said, isn't that what Christianity is? It's a little risky. It's a little bit crazy to people who don't get it. It's a little bit passionate. But God is doing great things through people who are not ashamed. I want to share with you guys a story and this comes from Voice of the Martyrs book. In the 16th century Netherlands, Dirk Wellens was labeled an Anabaptist during the rule of the Spanish Catholics, and he was thrown in prison. Now he's running for his life. He's escaped out of a tiny window and lowered himself on a rope made of old rags. Landing on the frozen pond along the side of the prison wall, he stepped gingerly on the ice, wondering if he would fall through. But the months of starvation endured in prison now served him well. He barely weighed 100 pounds. Before he reached the other side of the pond, a scream broke the silence. 
Halt! Immediately yelled the guard coming out of the window. Dirk had climbed through only moments ago. Dirk was too close to freedom. He kept going. The guard yelled again as he set foot on the ice. Quickly he began to chase after Dirk. But on his third step, there was a crack. A splash followed as the guard fell through the ice. His screams changed to shrieks of cold and terror. Help me, please. Help me. Dirk paused. Looked toward freedom. Then he turned and quickly made his way back to the prison pond. He lay on his stomach and stretched out his arm to rescue the nearly frozen guard. However, the guard in sarcastic gratitude grabbed Dirk and ordered him back to his cell. Despite his heroism, Dirk was buried at the stake for his faith in Christ. And this quote is in that story. Committed Christians don't live according to common sense. They do the unthinkable with full knowledge of the consequences. They do the impossible as if it were commonplace. I want to take you to 2 Samuel chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 23 this morning. Before we do that, let's, I'm going to just pray a minute. Father God, thank you again for the privilege and honor to open up your word and to share your word with your people today. Father, I ask that you would speak through me. Lord, I ask that you would be glorified. And I ask that all of us would be challenged to live for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Starting in verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting, and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. 
And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent of, that David had pitched for it. And David offered bird offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, I've got to change my voice a little when I read this. How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will make merry before the Lord, and I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants among whom you have spoken, by them I should be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. I want to take a step back and give you a little bit of history of what had happened with the ark up to this point, because I think it's really important in understanding what goes on in the story. Moses, of course, had been given commands by God to make an ark, and he'd been given specific instructions for the care of the ark of God. Okay, one of the things that is in the specific instructions was using poles that were designed to carry it, and it was to be bore on the shoulders of the Kohath family that were part of the tribe of Levites. Okay, also in Numbers 4.15, it talks about how the Kohath family was in charge of taking care of all of the holy items. And this included the ark, and that none of them were to be touched, physically touched by hand, because that would result in death. So these are specific instructions that God had given to Moses. The ark was a symbol of God's presence, of his blessing being with his people and of his holiness. Okay, you move on in the book of Joshua, you see that they're carrying it into the promised land. And the priests are going ahead, remember, and they step into the Jordan River and the Jordan River parts. And they carry the ark into the promised land. You get to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 5, and the Philistines are giving Israel a really hard time. And they capture the ark. And they take the ark back with them and they put it in the temple of their god, Dagon. And an interesting story takes place. The first night it's there, Dagon, the idol that they've built to Dagon, falls over and is bowing basically before the Ark of the Covenant. They set it back up again. The next day, when they come to check again, the idol has fallen down again and its heads and hands are broken off before the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, so the people are freaking out what is going on. On top of this, during the time that it is here, there, which is guessed to be about seven months that it was there, um, people are developing tumors, all kinds of tumors, all kinds of bad things are happening. And so the people say, we need to get rid of this ark. We can't keep this thing. And so what happens is they devise this idea. We're going we're gonna to just let whatever happens, happens. If the ark's supposed to stay with this, or if it's supposed to go back to Israel, we'll just leave it to chance. And they... And they set up two oxen, and they put their, they were milking cows, it said, and they put their calves in a pen. And I'm not a farmer, but I assume that the, the milking cows would want to be with their calves. And they were assuming this. But in this case, they kind of whip them on the back. They have the ark on this cart, and they make a beeline straight for the border, 
back into Israel, which would have been probably against their nature. And so they knew, yes, this needs to go back to the people of Israel. We don't want anything to do with it and its problems. Um, so anyway, after this, you get to 1 Samuel chapter 6 and chapter 7, and um, it ends up that um, some people take it when it crosses the border. I forget the name of the people group um, of Israelites. And uh, some of them die because they don't know properly how to handle the ark. Uh, some of them look at it and they're not supposed to. And so they call for this family uh, the, of the house of Abinadab, which I assume were Levites. And so they come and they take the ark and they bring it to their house. And so it stays in the house of Abinadab for 20 years. For 20 years. It's just there on the border. Okay, and remember the desire of, of Israel and their people was to have God's presence in the center, in the center of their nation, in Jerusalem, at the place of worship. And it's sitting on their border for 20 years in the house of Abinadab and in kirith Jerum. And they, it says they lamented over it. They were sad over the fact that that's where it was. Okay? So then you get to our story we pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 6. The Israelites have finally defeated the Philistines. And David longs for the ark to be brought back to Jerusalem, to the center of worship of God's people, for his presence to be right there where everyone can worship in the tent that he made for it. Okay, and then we pick up with our story. And the first point I want to see, want you to see today is that an epic move ends in tragedy. David makes a bad move with putting the ark on a cart. And I had to think about this a bit. If you read the passage, it says he made a new cart. So David had a noble idea. I don't know if he was copying what he saw the Philistines do when they threw the ark on a cart and, and drove it by cattle. And they got away with it, but they're not God's people. And they don't have God's standards. Okay, but David made this new cart, and they went, and they go to retrieve the ark. And it's, it's interesting. My wife's dad, he's a guy who thinks everything through. He's, he's always cautious. He always makes sure uh, he's thought about what could happen before it takes place. And, um, and so that's what makes his story more funny. A couple weeks ago, he, he works at the golf course, and he's, he and another guy, they're both 65 years old, they work part-time, they're out clearing some limbs that fell after a thunderstorm, and they're driving this work golf cart that has like a bed in the back. And they go up and they see this limb that's hanging down from a tree, but it's not quite detached. And so he goes up, and uh, he's tugging on it, and it won't come down, and they can't quite reach it. So they're parked, just so you understand, kind of on the back slope of a green that goes downhill, tugging on this branch. So he climbs up into the bed of the golf cart, and he's tugging on this branch, and it won't come. And so his buddy comes up there, and they're both going to tug on this branch to get it to break free and come down. Well, it finally breaks free, falls down, they fall down, they're all in the bed of the cart, the brake releases, and the cart's rolling down the hill. And they're riding in the back of this cart with no one driving it and the big branch. And Eddie says he's like leaning forward, trying to grab the steering wheel so they don't crash. It's hilarious. But in this situation for David... When we don't think things through, 
we might have a noble idea, but we just jump after it, and we don't think about God's instructions, and we don't think it through. There's usually a cost. There's usually a consequence. In this case, they didn't get hurt, praise the Lord, but there's a cost. And in this case, the cost is that Uzzah touches the ark and dies. And we have to balance this out with Scripture. We see that David was upset. And I'm sure a lot of people look at this passage and they say, that wasn't fair. He was trying to do something noble, something good. But we have to remember the standards that he had given to Moses. We have to remember, balance this with Scripture. God's, God's word says he's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. But he's also just and holy. And we balance that with Scripture. There's a couple interesting things I learned about this. From what we know, the, the oxen stumbles here, but it doesn't say that the cart itself tips or that the ark it looks like it's going to fall or anything. The other thing that was interesting that I learned about was, okay, if you think about the fact that Uzzah was Abinadad's son and he was raised with the ark in his house for 20 years. And so there could be a sense in which you've been around this your whole life you've lost a little bit of respect for its holiness and its sacredness because it's just kind of, it's there. And so he reaches out to study this, not thinking about how holy and how precious and how special this is in God's eyes. And uh, so just a couple things to kind of factor into that situation of what happened. And so because of this, the people are afraid. They have a healthy respect. They have a fear of the Lord. And David says, I, I don't think I can take it. And they leave it in the house of Obed-Edom, okay? And then it's left there for, I think, three months? Where did I have it written down? Yeah, for three months. And it says that he was blessed because of it being in his household. Okay, so then we come to the next part of the passage. The completed mission is cause for celebration. Okay, it's interesting. You see, David goes back to retrieve the ark, because it's being blessed in Obed-Edom's household, but he does it differently than he did the first time. He does it the right way. And now it doesn't indicate in the passage whether he got some people from the family of Kohath, of the tribe of Levites, that looked like it talked about in the Old Testament. I'm assuming they were priests that were carrying the ark at this point. But it is important to see this. It says, um, when those, in verse 13, and when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps. The two important words there, bore, means to lift or to carry. And then they took steps with it. So it's obvious and clear here that David has gone back and followed the instructions for the way the ark is supposed to be carried. And it's being brought into Jerusalem and the people are excited and they are celebrating and David is so excited, it says that he danced. He danced around in a loincloth, in a, in a linen aphid, which was basically a loincloth. Okay? And so even the word dancing there, you know, I thought maybe a manly Irish jig or something, but it says it actually means like leaped and twirled around. I mean, it was just a joyful expression before everyone that he loved the Lord and he was so excited that the ark was coming into the nation of Israel, into the center, into the tent that he had built for it. So they retrieve the ark the right way. They have a huge celebration and David dances. They make sacrifices. They have a huge meal. And they share it with everyone. And then we discover that the celebration is controversial. David's wife, it says, despises him. 
And I was really struck by this when I first read it and I, and because of the relationship that David had with, with Mikhail. If you look back, okay, Scripture says Mikhail loved David. David went out and killed and took 200 foreskins to be able to earn Mikhail as his wife. So I'm pretty sure he loved her too if he was willing to do that, to buy her from Saul as his wife. Okay, we also see that Mikhail had hidden David. She did the old fake the body in the bed trick so that Saul didn't come in and kill David. And so there was a love relationship that had gone on between David and Mikhail, and yet in this moment she looks out and she despises him for the way he is acting. She also exaggerates because she says he uncovered himself. She implies that he was naked dancing around, whereas... In, in the passage, it says he was wearing a linen ephod. So she exaggerates as well as despising him. The real truth of it is her heart was not on God, but was on their appearance. You know, one of the things that I thought was interesting is it reminded me of a, a sin David committed. She, you know, it says that all the people were there celebrating, but she's somewhere up in the palace kind of looking out of the window. And I'm thinking, why isn't she down there celebrating with the people the fact that the ark has come in? And maybe think about David when he got entangled in his sin with Bathsheba. He was supposed to be out to battle, but instead he was sitting in his, you know, he was relaxing. He decided not to go, and he encountered the temptation and the sin with Bathsheba. And so there was a fact that there was some kind of spiritual complacency going on in his life and maybe here in her life that affected her perspective of what she saw. And so here she despises David because of the way he acted. She was more concerned about what people would think or what their appearance might be because of what he was doing. But we see from David that he is not ashamed before God. He is not ashamed. He says, in fact, I will be even more bold than this. And uh, his reply is basically that his dancing was an expression of his joy in the Lord. And he's not going to change his enthusiasm for God based on what other people might think about it. And he would even let himself be despised, my man, and humble in his own sight. But here he tells her that those servants that you just talked about, they're going to still hold me in honor because I'm... praising God in front of the people. I'm the leader of the nation of Israel, and I'm going to praise God in front of them and be that example. Brothers and sisters, our world is desperately, it desperately needs and wants to see people who don't just talk about being Christians, but actually live like they mean it. I don't know how many times I've heard that from Unbelievers or people who used to be a part of the church and have left the church because they've seen so many people who are just faking through the Christian life. They want to see people who are living it and truly mean it. And here, David is praising God in front of the people, and he doesn't care what others think about it. I thought yesterday's parade was an awesome example of that. I saw people from this church going out and loving people down the sides of the street the whole way. They weren't ashamed of the fact that their shirts said, you know, no serve, proclaim Christ. They were there loving people and caring about the people of the community, and that's awesome. 
Uh, Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Oh, yeah, I thought I had him here. To everyone who believes. Romans 1.20, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. 1 Peter 4.1, For if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Matthew five fourteen through 16, Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works, and give glory to your Father, who is in heaven. So the question is, how can you shine your light? How can you show that you're not ashamed? Yesterday's parade was a great example. Um, the example of David and the fact that he was willing to stand there and praise God in front of the people, and he didn't care about what they thought is a great example, but let's get real about our daily lives a little bit. Uh, Some of you may have heard the story of what happened with Jason Collins and Chris Broussard, but if you haven't, okay. Chris Broussard is an ESPN analyst, so he sits around with other ESPN guys, and they talk about what's happening in sports and who's doing well and what's happening in athletes' lives and those kind of things and has discussions, okay? And... Jason Collins was an NBA basketball player who came out, the first ever to come out with the fact that he's gay. And he shared this openly. And so they were having a a panel discussion about this, and Chris Broussard um, is being questioned about how he feels about Jason Collins coming out as a gay NBA basketball player. And he says this, If you're openly living that type of lifestyle, the Bible says you know them by their fruits. It says... That it's a sin, said Broussard. Comparing homosexuality to any other sex outside of marriage, if you're openly living in unrepentant sin, whatever it may be, I believe that's walking in open rebellion to God and Jesus Christ. And Broussard said this on national TV. Okay, as an ESPN analyst. Broussard was also on Outside the Lines to discuss the potential ramifications of an openly gay player in the NBA, and he noted that there were others who felt the same way that he did who might have reservations about discussing them openly. As a Christian, Broussard said, I don't agree with homosexuality. I believe it's a sin, said Broussard. There are a lot of Christians in the NBA, and just because they don't agree with that kind of lifestyle, they don't want to be called bigoted and intolerant. Broussard received a lot of criticism, and ESPN apologized on his behalf for his personal viewpoints coming out in the an influence of the sports discussion that they were having. But he didn't lose his job. But he risked it, didn't he? He risked his job. He risked his reputation. And he stood for what he believed in on national TV. And I give him a lot of applause for that. And I know that God was glorified in that. Okay, that's an example of not being ashamed of the gospel. Are you afraid to speak up about your beliefs? because it might be controversial to whoever you're talking with? Are you more concerned about what others may think, like Mikhail was? Uh, As a young person, um, not many of the kids are in here, but when you go to the lunchroom at school, are you afraid to bow your head and pray just because of what other kids may think? Uh, If you haven't seen the movie, God's Not Dead, you need to see that movie. Excellent movie. Kind of 
in the same idea as this of not being ashamed and the way they stand up for the gospel there's it's awesome um, sorry that's a totally side subject that just popped in my head um will you risk your job your reputation your comforts maybe even your lifestyle to stand up for christ and to share the gospel i believe we're called to as christians as followers of jesus christ um Honestly, every day I go to work right now, I work at a golf course, is a battle. In the shop, there are filthy pictures. There's filthy conversations that go on at the lunchroom. And there's a lot of foul talk. And it's a battle for me every day, and I go in with prayer, because I know there are things I don't want to see, there are things I don't want to hear, and there are things I don't want to participate in. One day I was feeling really sick, and I wanted to go home. Uh, my stomach was bothering me. I didn't know what was going on. I just felt miserable. And, and so I debated, should I just go home? But I really needed, I, I really wanted to finish the day. And so I was praying, Lord, just, just help me through this day. Help me through this day. I don't want to go home sick. After lunch, I got assigned a job with a man who's 70 years old. His name is Dell, And uh, he's one of those guys that... I never thought he knew anything about Jesus or the Bible um, by the way he talks and by the way he acts around these other guys. And we're out on the course, and we had to stop our job for some golfers, and we're sitting there. And he turns to me, and he says, he's been reading his Bible, and he wondered what it meant when Jesus told Nicodemus he must be born again. He said, what is this second birth thing anyway? I mean, can you believe that? That was spiritual warfare. Saint wanted me to go home that day. And now, all of a sudden, an opportunity to share the gospel has been dropped in my lap. It couldn't be more blatant. And so we had a conversation about God's word and about what true salvation is. And it was awesome. And I, and I praise God for that opportunity. And I thought about this. If I had acted like everyone else, would he have asked me that question? No, he wouldn't have asked me that question. Father God in heaven, I thank you so much for this day. Lord, I know that all of us fall short of the glory of God. But Father, I thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that covers our sins. And I ask that you would strengthen us to be more bold, more passionate about the Lord in our everyday lives, to not be afraid to speak out about the truth. And I pray that you would empower and strengthen this whole congregation to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, John. Appreciate your word. And I know it's one that we 